Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This episode, titled Those Amazing Urban Legends 2, is part of our Legends series, and we've had so many responses from Urban Legends 1 that we thought it might be fun to do another. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and these are our 10 favorites for this episode, starting with The Curse of the Bambino, an urban legend that all baseball fans especially Boston fans, know to be true. This from Wikipedia and CurseOfTheBambino.com, where you can find all kinds of Babe Ruth memories. The Curse of the Bambino was a superstition. We like to call an urban legend, evolving from the failure of the Boston Red Sox baseball team to win the World Series in the 86-year period from 1918 to 2004. While some fans took the curse seriously, most used the expression in a tongue-in-cheek manner. This misfortune began after the Red Sox sold star player Babe Ruth, sometimes called the Bambino, to the New York Yankees in the off-season of 1919-1920. Before that point, the Red Sox had been one of the most successful professional baseball franchises, winning the first World Series and amassing five World Series titles. After the sale, they went without a title for decades, even while the Red Sox won five American League championships from 1946 to 1986, as the previously lackluster Yankees became one of the most successful franchises in North American professional sports. The curse became a focal point of the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry over the years. Boston just had to break that curse. Being an Orioles fan, this was hard to watch because both teams, being in the same division, beat up on Baltimore almost every year as they competed for the number one and number two spots in the AL East and didn't leave much room for my Baltimore to make the playoffs. But back to our story. From 1920, when Ruth left to join the Yanks, to 1946, the formerly champion Red Sox didn't even make a playoff. Then when they did, it was the bad news bear syndrome every time they made it to the World Series best of seven. Outfielders would miss catches. Their best batters would go hitless. Easy grounders would dribble through the legs of infielders. And on and on. I recall in the years when the internet came around and the day after Boston lost the final game in a World Series, seeing a photo taken by a man soon to jump from the open door of a plane over what looked to be Boston about 8,000 feet below. He was wearing black dress shoes, which were the focus of the picture, so he could see his shoes positioned at the edge of the plane door and then the city below. On the left shoe, the word go. On the right shoe, Boston. Boston has some diehard fans. We were left to presume that this one died hard. There were all kinds of efforts to reverse the curse. Red Sox fans attempted various methods over the years to exorcise their famous curse. These included placing a Boston cap atop Mount Everest and burning a Yankees cap at its base camp, hiring professional exorcists and Father Guido Sarducci to purify Fenway Park, spray-painting a reverse curve street sign on Storo Drive to change it to say, Reverse the Curse. The sign wasn't replaced until just after their 2004 World Series win and finding a piano owned by Ruth that he had supposedly pushed into a pond near his Sudbury, Massachusetts farm, home plate farm. In Ken Burns' 1994 documentary, 
Baseball, former Red Sox pitcher Bill Lee suggested that the Red Sox should exhume the body of Babe Ruth, transport it back to Fenway, and publicly apologize for trading Ruth to the Yankees. Some declared the curse broken during a game on August 31, 2004, when a foul ball hit by Manny Ramirez flew into Section 9, Box 95, Road AA, and struck a boy's face, knocking two of his teeth out. 16-year-old Lee Gavin, a Boston fan whose favorite player was Ramirez, lived on the Sudbury farm owned by Ruth. That same day, the Yankees suffered their worst loss in team history, a 22 to nothing clobber vest at home against the Cleveland Indians. Some fans also cite a comedy curse-breaking ceremony performed by musician Jimmy Buffett and his warm-up team, one dressed as Babe and one dressed as a witch doctor, at a Fenway concert in September 2004. Just after being traded to the Red Sox, Kurt Schilling appeared in an advertisement for the Ford F-150 pickup truck, hitchhiking with a sign indicating he was going to Boston. When picked up, he said that he had an 86-year-old curse to break. In 2004, the Red Sox once again met the Yankees in the American League Championship Series. The Red Sox lost the first three games, including losing Game 3 at Fenway by the lopsided score of 19-8. It was looking pretty bad. The Red Sox trailed 4-3 in the bottom of the ninth inning of Game 4. But the team tied the game with a walk by Kevin Millar and a stolen base by pinch runner Dave Roberts, followed by an RBI single against Yankee closer Mariano Rivera by third baseman Bill Mueller, and won on a two-run home run in the 12th inning by David Ortiz. The Red Sox won the next three games to become the first Major League Baseball team to win a seven-game postseason series after being down three games to none. The Red Sox then faced the St. Louis Cardinals, team to whom they had lost in 1946 and 67, and led throughout the series, winning in a four-game sweep. Cardinals shortstop Edgar Renteria hit the final out of the game. The curse was no more. This one is called Death by Wedding Rice, and it's from About.com. Dear Urban Legends, an urban legend that I've heard most recently by a teacher during a discussion in a high school English class is that you shouldn't throw rice at weddings because after the party is over, birds will come and eat it. White rice, being as dehydrated as it is, will immediately begin absorbing water upon entering the moist environment of the bird's body. It will then swell up, and if there's enough of it in there, the bird's body, specifically the crop where the food goes first to be stored, will burst, killing the poor little critter. Is there any truth to it? Dear Reader, no truth to it at all, according to ornithologists, who say rice is perfectly safe for birds to eat. Wild rice is a dietary staple for many birds, after all, as are other grains that expand when they absorb moisture, wheat and barley, for example. One thing purveyors of this myth fail to take into account is that the rate at which dried grains absorb liquids is pretty darn slow, except when it takes place at cooking temperatures. In addition, there's a biological process you may be familiar with called digestion. Long before any uncooked rice consumed by a bird could expand and cause harm, it would have already been ground up in the bird's crop and well into the process of being broken down into nutrients and waste by the acids and enzymes in its digestive tract. It's unclear exactly how and when this misconception originated, though it was most famously promulgated by advice columnist Ann Landers in 1988 when she published a letter warning prospective brides and grooms against the practice of throwing rice at weddings. 
Here's her column. Dear Anne, I've never seen this issue raised in your column, but it is something every prospective bride should think about, especially those who love birds. I am getting married in September, and I'd like to have bird seed thrown instead of rice. Hard, dry rice is harmful to birds. According to ecologists, it absorbs the moisture in their stomach and kills them. How can I get this message across to my guest without sounding like some kind of a nut? My fiancé is a bird lover, too, and says it's okay with him if I say this is the invitation. KMM, Long Island. Credulous as always, Landers noted in her reply that a Connecticut legislator had recently proposed a ban on rice throwing at weddings for precisely the same reason. This was greeted with skepticism by bird experts everywhere, including Cornell ornithologist Stephen C. Sibley, who wrote in a letter subsequently quoted by Landers, There is absolutely no truth to the belief that rice, even instant, can kill birds. I hope you will print this information in your column and put an end to this myth. In the meantime, keep throwing rice, folks. Tradition will be served, and the birds will eat well and be healthy. The next story is called Bunny Man Bridge. This from About.com. On Colchester Road in Fairfax County, Virginia, just outside the small town of Clifton, stands an unlikely tourist destination known officially as Colchester Overpass, unofficially as Bunny Man Bridge. To outward appearances, there's nothing remarkable about the site, which consists of a one-lane concrete tunnel beneath a railroad track. What draws people to it, despite the fact that tourism is discouraged by local authorities, are the tales of mayhem and murder told about the place. The details vary in the telling, but there are two basic versions of the story. One begins with the closure of a nearby insane asylum from which a busload of inmates were being transferred to another institution when two of the most dangerous escaped and hid in the woods. Despite a manhunt, they eluded authorities for weeks, leaving the half-eaten carcasses of rabbits in their wake. Eventually, one of them was found dead, hanging from the overpass. The other escapee, now dubbed the Bunny Man or simply Bunny Man, was never found. Some say he was struck and killed by a passing train, and his ghost continues to haunt the overpass to this day, killing and mutilating innocent passers-by. The other version begins with a deranged teenager who one day donned a white bunny costume, murdered his entire family, then hung himself from the overpass. It's his spirit that haunts the bridge, chasing down visitors with his axe and disemboweling them. So, you ask, is Bunny Man real? No, not the Bunny Man of legend at any rate. No insane asylum has ever existed in or near Clifton, Virginia. That's according to archivist and historian Brian A. Conley, who extensively researched the Bunny Man stories for the Fairfax County Public Library. Nor is there any record of a local teenager murdering his family. No one has ever hung himself on Bunny Man Bridge, nor have any homicides occurred there. Like others who have attempted to verify these tales, Conley concluded, they're false. In short, he wrote, the Bunny Man did not exist. However, on October 22, 1970, a curious story appeared in the Washington Post under the headline, Man in Bunny Suit Sought in Fairfax. According to the report, a young man and his fiancée were sitting in his car on the 5400 block of Guinea Road, approximately seven miles due east of the Colchester Overpass, when they were accosted by a man dressed in a white suit with long bunny ears. After complaining that they were trespassing, he threw a wooden-handled hatchet through the right front car window and skipped off into the night, the article said. Just over a week later, the axe man with bunny ears was spotted again about a block away from where the first sighting had occurred, 
This time he was standing on the porch of a newly constructed house, hacking away at a roof support. Here's how it was reported in the Washington Post. Paul Phillips, a private security guard for a construction company, said he saw the rabbit standing on the front porch of a new but unoccupied house. I started talking to him, Phillips said, and that's when he started chopping. All you people trespass around here, Phillips said the rabbit told him as he whacked eight gashes in the pole. If you don't get out of here, I'm going to bust you in the head. Phillips said he walked back to his car to get his handgun, but the rabbit, carrying the long-handled axe, ran off into the woods. The mysterious rabbit of Guinea Road was never identified, caught, or questioned, nor was he ever seen again, so far as anyone knows. But there are good reasons to suppose that these sightings formed the genesis of the Bunny Man legend. Not only did the incidents occur in Fairfax County, not far from the Colchester overpass, not only did the perpetrator allegedly threaten people with an axe while dressed in a bunny costume, but these reports were published in 1970, almost exactly the same time the earliest known variants of the story began to appear. So yes, the real-life events of some 40-odd years ago served as the basis for this tale, but the rest, not least any supposed connection between the bunny man and his namesake bridge, is pure embellishment. And that's how a legend is made. Our fourth story is Disney legends. There are a lot of urban legends out there that involve Disney, starting with the Disney Anchor Babies legend. It's no longer enough to risk death crossing the border to have your baby so he or she can become wealthy American citizens. If you can make it to Disneyland, it's a free pass for life. This from factually.gizmodo.com. On July 4, 1979, little Teresa Salcedo was the first baby born in Disneyland at California. But, contrary to urban legend, she didn't get a lifetime pass to the happiest place on earth. It's a surprisingly popular misconception that any baby born in a Disney park gets a lifetime pass. But it's completely untrue. And it's a rumor that the Walt Disney Company would probably like to go away if only because the park has reportedly seen women rush toward Disneyland as they're going into labor as a way to get their babies this sweet, non-existent deal. As one former Disney employee recounts on the Laughing Place message board, In another case, a woman who was in labor came to Disneyland and actually hid in a bathroom, and her husband came to first aid to tell them that his wife was in the bathroom in labor. She would not come out because she had heard that you get a lifetime passport if your baby is born at Disneyland. Once they assured her that she would not be receiving a lifetime passport, she came out and accepted the ambulance ride to Western Medical Center where her baby was born shortly thereafter. Baby Teresa may not have gotten a lifetime pass. Some insist she did, but it was kept secret to discourage people from trying it. Though she did get a visit from Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and Goofy in the hospital. They presented her with Disneyland Birth Certificate Number 1, which, in retrospect, the company probably regretted as well. As far as we know, there have been just four babies born on Disneyland property in total. After Teresa was born in 1979, and by the way, she was born on a bench near the entrance, there was a baby born in 1984 at a Disneyland first aid station, and another in 2002 in a backroom office. The most recent was in 2012 when a baby was born in one of Disneyland's parking lots. All four babies born at Disneyland have been girls. So I guess if you're expecting a boy and want to break new ground, head on over to Space Mountain. Just don't expect little Johnny or little Juan to get a lifetime pass. 
Another Disney urban legend claims that Walt had himself cryogenically frozen in a special cavern under Space Mountain. Where to begin? Let's share some little-known facts about Walt Disney from Time.com. There may be no entertainment industry figure more influential than Walt Disney. In his 65 years, Disney succeeded in moving animation from a black-and-white novelty to a highly respected genre that would produce Oscar-worthy feature films. More than a few of his creations, including Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and Goofy, are instantly recognizable global icons, and the small animation house he founded on October 16, 1923, is now valued at more than $42 billion, with a B. Yet despite his fame, Disney remains a relatively unknown figure. His story is overshadowed by his achievements, and sometimes by outright myth. But here are some of the things he did do. He dropped out of high school to join the Army. During the First World War, a 16-year-old Walt Disney left school and attempted to enlist in the Army. He was rejected for being underage, but managed to find employment with the Red Cross as an ambulance driver. The organization sent Disney to France for a year, but by the time he arrived, the armistice agreement had already been signed. Mickey Mouse is virtually synonymous with Disney's company, but if the animator's wife hadn't intervened, he might have been represented by... Mortimer Mouse instead. In the Mouse's first few shorts, he was referred to as Mortimer Mouse, but Lillian Disney managed to convince her husband that Mickey would be a more marketable name. Mortimer later became Mickey's Brooklyn-accented rival, vying for Minnie Mouse's affection. While mostly known for his skills as an animator, director, and producer, not to mention his business acumen, Disney also tried his hand at voice acting. From Mickey's inception in 1928, all the way to 1947, the mouse's voice was provided by Disney before being turned over to English voice actor Jimmy McDonald. Disney loved the character so much that he returned to the studio in 1955 to voice Mickey Mouse shorts for his company's television show, The Mickey Mouse Club. When word got out that Disney planned to turn Snow White into a feature film, industry insiders were convinced his efforts would fail, calling the project Disney's Folly. His detractors were almost correct. Disney did in fact run out of funding during Snow White's production and was forced to show loan officers a rough cut of the movie before he could secure additional financing. Luckily for both Disney and his creditors, Snow White turned out to be a smashing success. The film earned over $8 million during its initial release, about $130 million in today's dollars. One little-known fact about Disney, he received more Academy Awards and nominations than any other person in history. Between 1932 and 1969, Disney won 22 Academy Awards and was nominated 59 times. Included amongst this trove of Oscars are three awards created specifically for him. One for creating Mickey Mouse, another recognizing his contribution of music in the field of animation, and a specially made prize honoring Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs that featured a traditional statuette and seven miniature versions alongside of it. Now to debunk one of the biggest myths about Disney. After his death, he was not cryogenically frozen. One fact that everyone thinks they know about Walt Disney is that his body has been preserved through cryogenics. However, as Snopes long ago revealed, there is no truth to this urban legend. All available documentation states that Disney was cremated after his death and the first ever cryogenic freezings took place a month after Disney passed on. This Disney legend titled Andy's Coming is from the FW.com. 
If you saw the Disney film Toy Story, you'll remember that the toys all came to life whenever little boy Andy was out of the room, then dropped dead when he re-entered. The rule being that no toy could be alive with a human present. The rumor is, all you have to do is yell, Andy's coming, and the costumed Toy Story characters at the Disney parks will drop to the ground and lie motionless until the coast is clear. The truth. It was true until the internet ruined it. (laughs) On special occasions, such as the arrival of a kid named Andy, the characters used to collapse when warned that Andy was on the way, much to the delight of park guests. But once news of the trick started circulating on the internet, everyone wanted to try it. Fearing damaged costumes and angry families whose character meet and greets had been cut short by other guests, yelling that Andy was near, Disney instructed Woody, Jesse, and Buzz to ignore the prompt. Try it anyway, but don't tell them we sent you. Here's story number five, and this one's titled The Kangaroo Thief. These two guys my friend knows work for Chase Bank. Every year they go to Australia for a big bank-sponsored golf tournament. This past year, these guys and their team won the entire tournament and went on to drink lots of beers and celebrate while wearing their newly won green tournament jackets. After drinking up a storm, they plopped into their rented car and were driving on deserted roads nearby when they accidentally hit a large kangaroo. Getting out of the car, they realized that the kangaroo had died in the accident. Being so drunk, though, they propped up the kangaroo, its lifeless head bouncing from one side to the other, dressed it in one of their new green jackets, and took pictures of themselves with their arms around it. After a few minutes of picture-taking, the guys were shocked when it seemed that the kangaroo came back to life. It turns out that the poor kangaroo wasn't dead, but it had passed out, and when it came back to consciousness, started to box with the drunken guys. It actually broke one guy's jaw. It then hopped away into the landscape. The men couldn't drive their rented car as the keys were in the green jacket, which was still on the kangaroo. So they had to walk back to the tournament. A little while later, a pack of kangaroos was seen in the distance, one of them wearing the green jacket. We can't help but add these kangaroo bits so you have something to share at work tomorrow. Question. What do you get when you cross an elephant with a kangaroo? Answer. Bloody great holes all over Australia. Question. What do you call a lazy baby kangaroo? Answer. A pouch potato. How do sick kangaroos get better? Answer. They have a hoperation. Question. How does a kangaroo win a gold medal? Answer. In the long jump. Story number six. Here's a story that MasterCard could use for their priceless series called... The Groom's Revenge. For anyone who feels they've been invited to too many weddings lately, have a laugh. This is actually true. Or so, the article says. It was in a local newspaper in South Carolina, and even Jay Leno mentioned it on The Tonight Show. This is a true story about a recent wedding that took place at Clemson University. It was a huge wedding with about 300 guests. After the wedding, at the reception, the groom got up on the stage at the microphone to talk to the crowd. He said that he wanted to thank everyone for coming, many from long distances, to support them at their wedding. He especially wanted to thank the bride and groom's families for coming and to thank his new father-in-law for providing such a fabulous reception. To thank everyone for coming, 
bringing gifts and everything. He said he wanted to give everyone a special gift just from him. So, taped to the bottom of everyone's chair, including the wedding party, was a manila envelope. He said that this was his gift and told everyone to open their envelopes. Inside each envelope was an 8x10 photo of his best man having sex with the bride. He had gotten suspicious of the two of them and hired a private detective to trail them weeks prior to the wedding. After he stood there and watched the people's reactions for a couple of minutes, he turned to the best man and said, F you. He turned to the bride and said, F you too. Then he turned to the dumbfounded crowd and said, I'm out of here. He had the marriage annulled the first thing that Monday morning. While most of us would have broken off the engagement immediately after finding out about the affair, this guy goes through with it anyway as if nothing was wrong. His revenge? Making the bride's parents pay over 32000 for 300 guests for a wedding and reception. Letting everyone know exactly what did happen. And best of all, trashing the bride's and best man's reputations in front of all of their friends and their entire families. Do you think we might see one of those MasterCard priceless commercials out of this? Elegant wedding for 300 family and guests, 32000 Photographers for the wedding, $3,000 deluxe. Honeymoon accommodations in Maui for two weeks, 8500 The look on everyone's faces after seeing a photo of the bride and the best man having sex, priceless. And this is story number seven. Lottery's Biggest Loser. This one from the Daily Mail, written by Petra Allen about a couple that lost their winning lottery ticket. A young British couple who missed out on a three million pound lottery fortune after losing their ticket described their ordeal yesterday as the cruelest torture imaginable. On what should have been a joyous first wedding anniversary, Martin and Kay Tott told how their astonishingly bad luck had ended their dreams, left them devastated, and put a strain on their marriage. After hearing a TV appeal about the unclaimed jackpot and recognizing the numbers as their own, they had turned their flat upside down looking for the ticket, without success. Camelot officials investigated their claim for seven weeks and were satisfied that it was genuine. But because there is a 30-day time limit on reporting lost tickets, it was concluded that the company had no legal powers to pay up. Mrs. Tott, a 24-year-old receptionist from Watford, said, Thinking you're going to have all that money is really liberating. Having it taken away has the opposite effect. It drains the life from you and puts a terrible strain on your marriage. It was the cruelest torture imaginable. Her 33-year-old husband had been dreaming of leaving his job as a purchasing manager for a fashion chain, buying a house big enough to start a family, and splashing out on a Porsche or an Audi to park outside. Instead, he has to face continuing with the daily grind with the couple on a joint income of 34,000 pounds. Going to work is hard now, he said. However much you like your job, you can't help thinking, if I had three million in my hand, I wouldn't have to be here. I have spent the last seven weeks at work staring at my screen. People have noticed there is something wrong. At least the secret is out now, and people will understand. The couple believe the rules have been too rigidly applied and that Camelot has not treated them fairly. They know we're the winners. We know we're the winners, and they should pay up, said Mr. Tot. Their hopes had been raised on March 5th when they saw publicity about the unclaimed jackpot from last September. 
Noticing that the ticket had been bought in their town, they looked up the numbers on teletext. The numbers just leapt out at me from the screen, said Mrs. Tot. Something clicked in my brain, and I was off. They searched all their drawers, the pockets of their clothes and dustbins, desperate to see the winning numbers of 6, 7, 11, 23, 32, and 44 printed out. Although unable to find the ticket, Mr. Tot was able to give Camelot the location of the purchase, a Londis store in Watford, and the exact time, 1 p.m. This set the couple apart from 115 other callers who tried to claim the prize with a variety of excuses, indicating that the ticket had been destroyed in the washing machine or eaten by a dog. When Camelot security chief Martin Chalice called round to see the couple, they provided him with proof that they had been selecting the same numbers for both weekly draws at the same outlet for five weeks. Camelot's central computer verified this. The numbers were Mr. Tot's birthday, July 6th, Mrs. Tot's birthday, August 7th, the day they got engaged, September 11th, the couple's ages when they met, 23 and 32, and the number of Mr. Tot's grandmother's house, 44. Documentation including birth certificates, passports, and even a photograph of Mr. Tot's grandmother's front door were all used to verify the claims. Council tax forms, bank statements, and other personal papers were handed over by the Tots in an attempt to prove that they were trustworthy, but all their efforts were in vain. Camelot said it had referred the case to its legal advisors to see if they could find a way to pay up. While they were unable to help, the case was referred to the Watchdog National Lottery Commission to see if it had any extra discretion to authorize payment. But it also decided that it could not override the 30-day rule. A spokesman said, The rules stand. The game and the lottery must abide by them. Both Camelot and the National Lottery Commission have concluded they have no discretion. Asked about the anger and distress of Mr. and Mrs. Tot, the spokesman replied, they were offered professional counseling throughout the decision-making period, which they declined. The £3,011,065 prize is the largest unclaimed amount since the lottery in England began in 1994. It will now be given away to good causes. Our story number eight, The English Assignment, written by Sharon Melniser from Tuesday's Globe and Mail. On the Tuesday morning following Labor Day, rather than listening for the 8.50 bell to ring, I will be casually chatting over a steaming cup of sweet, frothy something with a close friend and former colleague at a neighborhood coffee shop. It won't be our first day one of school spent not at school, but our conversation will doubtless return to reminiscing about our days in the classroom. I gave my grade 12 English students a memorable assignment in the late 1990s, one that I used again several times. I found the idea buried in a professional journal. It's a prime example of John Gray's Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. An English professor from the University of California described it in her instructions to a first-year English class. Today, we will experiment with a new form called the Tandem Story. The process is simple. Each person will pair off with the person sitting to his or her immediate right. As homework tonight, one of you will write the first paragraph of a short story. You will email your partner that paragraph and send another copy to me. The partner will read the first paragraph and then add another paragraph to the story and send it back, also sending another copy to me. The first person will then add a third paragraph and so on, back and forth. Remember to reread what has been written each time in order to keep the story coherent. 
There is to be absolutely no talking outside of the emails, and anything you wish to say must be written in the email. The story is over when both agree a conclusion has been reached. Here's what two of my students turned in. Let's call them Marla and Neil, the tandem story. First paragraph by Marla. At first, Betty couldn't decide which kind of tea she wanted. The chamomile, which used to be her favorite for lazy evenings at home, now reminded her too much of Bruce, who once said, in happier times, that he also adored chamomile. But she felt she must now, at all costs, keep her mind off Bruce. His possessiveness was suffocating, and if she thought about him too much, her asthma started acting up again. So chamomile was out of the question. She'd switch to chai. Second paragraph by Neil. Meanwhile, Advanced Sergeant Bruce Harrington, leader of the attack squadron now in orbit over Zontar Three, had more important things to think about than the neurotic meanderings of an airheaded, asthmatic bimbo named Betty, with whom he had spent one sweaty night over a year ago. A.S. Harrington to Geostation 17, he said into his transgalactic communicator, Polar orbit established. No sign of resistance so far. But before he could sign off, a bluish particle beam flashed out of nowhere and blasted a hole through his ship's cargo bay. The jolt from the direct hit sent him flying out of his seat and across the cockpit. <laughs> Later in the story, Maria. Bruce struck his head and died almost immediately. But not before he felt one last pang of regret for physically brutalizing the one woman who had ever had feelings for him. Soon afterwards, Earth stopped its pointless hostilities towards the peaceful farmers of Zontar III. Congress passes law permanently abolishing war and space travel. Betty read in her newspaper one morning. The news simultaneously excited her and bored her. Even later in the story now, Neil. Little did she know, but she had less than ten seconds to live. Thousands of miles above the city, the Meribian mothership launched its first of the lithium fusion missiles. The dim-witted, bleeding-heart peaceniks who pushed the Unilateral Aerospace Disarmament Treaty through Parliament had left Earth a defenseless target for the hostile alien empires who were determined to destroy the human race. The Prime Minister, in his top-secret mobile submarine headquarters on the floor of the Arctic Ocean, felt the inconceivably massive explosion which vaporized poor, pathetic, stupid Betty. Marla. This is absurd, Mrs. Milner, sir. I refuse to continue this mockery of literature. My writing partner is a violent, chauvinistic, semi-literate adolescent. Neil. Yeah? Well, my writing partner is a self-centered, tedious neurotic whose attempts at writing are the literary equivalent of Valium. Oh, shall I have chamomile tea, or shall I have some other sort of freaking tea? Oh, no, what am I to do? I'm such an airheaded bimbo who reads too many Jackie Collins novels. Then Marla. Brain-dead jerk? Neil. PMS witch? Marla. Drop dead, you Neanderthal. Neil, in your dreams, you flake. Go drink some tea. It was now time for the teacher to interject. Mrs. Milner, sir. I really like this one. Good work. Since the objectives of the assignment focused on the appreciation of another's point of view, the building of respect for another's opinion, and heightening motivation to continue a meaningful dialogue, what took place seemed to the students a dismal failure. However, in terms of meeting the objectives I had set for the assignment, and fully knowing where their mistakes were going to take us, the exercise couldn't have been more successful or more fun. Every good teacher, every effective leader, for that matter, knows that it is from our mistakes we all learn. It follows, then, that failure is something to celebrate. It is the very soil in which learning grows and knowledge blooms. Both students received top marks.
Sharon Melniser lives in Winnipeg. Story number nine, the day it rained whale. The term exploding whale most often refers to an event at Florence, Oregon in November 1970 when a dead sperm whale reported to be a gray whale was blown up by the Oregon Highway Division in an attempt to dispose of its rotting carcass. The explosion threw whale flesh over 800 feet away. This incident became famous in the United States when American humorist Dave Barry wrote about it in his newspaper column after viewing a videotape of television footage of the explosion. The event became well-known internationally a few decades later when the same footage circulated on the Internet. There have also been examples of spontaneously exploding whales. The most widely reported example was in Taiwan in 2004 when the buildup of gas inside a decomposing sperm whale caused it to explode in a crowded urban area whilst being transported for a post-mortem examination. On November 12, 1970, a 45-foot-long, 8-ton sperm whale beached itself at Florence, Oregon, on the central Oregon coast. All Oregon beaches are under the jurisdiction of the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, but in 1970, Oregon beaches were technically classified as state highways, so responsibility for disposing of the carcass fell upon the Oregon Highway Division, now known as the Oregon Department of Transportation, or ODOT. After consulting with officials from the United States Navy, they decided it would be best to remove the whale the same way as they would remove a boulder. They thought burying the whale would be ineffective as it would soon be uncovered and believed dynamite would disintegrate the whale into pieces small enough for scavengers to clear up. Thus, half a ton of dynamite was applied to the carcass. The engineer in charge of the operation, George Thornton, stated on camera in an interview with Portland newsman Paul Lindman, that he wasn't exactly sure how much dynamite would be needed. Thornton later explained that he was chosen to remove the whale because the district engineer, Dale Allen, had gone hunting. Coincidentally, a military veteran from Springfield with explosives training, Walter Eumenhofer, was at the scene scoping a potential manufacturing site for his employer. Eumenhofer later told the Springfield News reporter Ben Raymond Lode that he had warned Thornton that the amount of dynamite he was using was very wrong. When he first heard that 20 cases were being used, he was in disbelief. He had known that 20 cases of dynamite was far too much dynamite to be used. Instead of 20 cases, they needed 20 sticks of dynamite. Eumenhofer said Thornton was not interested in the advice. In an odd coincidence, Eumenhofer's brand new Osmobile was flattened by a chunk of falling blubber after the blast. He told Lode that he had just bought the 98 Regency at Dunham Osmobile in Eugene during the Get a Whale of a Deal promotion. <laughs> the resulting explosion was caught on film by cameraman Doug Brazil for a story reported by news reporter Paul Linneman at KATU-TV in Portland, Oregon. In his voiceover, Linman literally joked that landlubber newsman became landblubber newsman for the blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds. This explosion caused large pieces of blubber to land near buildings and in parking lots some distance away from the beach, one of which caused severe damage to Eumenhofer's parked car. Only some of the whale was disintegrated. Most of it remained on the beach for the Oregon Highway Division workers to clear away. In his report, Lindman also noted that scavenger birds, whom it had been hoped would eat the remains of the carcass after the explosion, did not appear as they were possibly scared miles away by the huge noise. Ending his story, Lindman noted that it might be concluded that, should a whale ever be washed ashore in Lane County again, those in charge will not only remember what to do, they'll certainly remember what not to do. 
When 41 sperm whales beached nearby in 1979, state parks officials burned and buried them. Lindman's implication that the highway department had made a mistake was not subscribed to by Thornton, who later that day told Eugene Register guard reporter Larry Bacon, It went just exactly right, except the blast funneled a hole in the sand under the whale, causing some of the whale chunks to be blown back toward the onlookers and their cars. Thornton was promoted to the Medford office several months after the incident and served in that post until his retirement. When Lindman contacted him in the mid-1990s, the newsman said Thornton felt the operation had been an overall success and had been converted into a public relations disaster by hostile media reports. And final note, a 2006 study found that the video had been viewed 350 million times across various websites. Our last story is about the urban legend that surrounds the 1965 pop hit Puff the Magic Dragon, performed by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Sometimes you can feel the wheels turning in the minds of those who make up urban legends. If a hippie folk trio sings a song with Puff in the title, it's got to be about the demon weed. From there you can make up details yourself, and many did, casting our hero, Little Jackie Paper, as a reference to cigarette rolling papers, and the land of Hanalee as a shout-out to a particularly fertile part of Hawaii. Hint, hint. The true facts are these. The lyrics to Puff were written by Cornell student Lenny Lipton in 1959. One particularly melancholy evening, Lipton realized his childhood was gone forever, and after reading Ogden Nash's The Tale of Custard the Dragon at the college's library, he ventured into nearby Ithaca to visit his friend and fellow student, Lenny Edelstein. No one was home, however, so Lipton let himself in and used the typewriter to craft an ode to his carefree days. Edelstein's roommate, Peter Yarrow, the Peter in Peter, Paul, and Mary, eventually found the poem and wrote music around it. Yarrow, for his part, also claims that no college student smoked pot in 1959, and the climate of the time seems to bear him out. In concert, the trio debunked the myth further by playing the U.S. national anthem and humorously attempting to find drug references in it. This from About.com. Stay tuned for show bloopers right after this wrap-up. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We hope you had a good laugh and enjoyed some of our histories. You can catch all our episodes at 1001storiespodcast.com or post a comment at facebook.com slash 1001heroes. Thanks to all of you fans in the U.S. and abroad for all your support. And please remember to share us with your friends, especially when you stop by facebook.com slash 1001heroes, one of the places you can find our shows, and share our show with your Facebook friends. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. Second paragraph by Neil. Meanwhile, Advanced Sergeant Bruce Harrington... <laughs> Second paragraph by Neil. Meanwhile, Advanced Sergeant Bruce Harrington, leader of the attack squadron... <laughs> Too much. Second paragraph by Neil. Meanwhile... <clears throat> Second paragraph by Neil. Meanwhile, Advanced Sergeant Bruce Harrington, leader of the attack squadron now in orbit over Zontar 3, had more important things to think about. <laughs> had more had more important things to think about than the neurotic <laughs> Oh, it's too much. 
Leader of the attack squadron now in orbit over Zontar Three had more important things to think about than the neurotic meanderings of an air-headed asthmatic. <laughs> Much. Second paragraph by Neil. Meanwhile, Advanced Sergeant Bruce Harrington, leader of the attack squadron now in orbit over Zontar 3.